Well, let's turn our Bibles to uh, the book of Judges. Safer Shoftim, as the Jews call it, the book of Judges. Uh, chapter, just turn to chapter one. We're going to focus our hearts and minds this morning on uh, just the first couple of chapters uh, as we go through. There's also a little sermon notes page, as always, uh, and it has an, an outline. So what I'm going to do this morning is really explain to you that prologue part. So you see that in the outline there, the first three, two plus a little bit of chapter three. Uh, and then I want you to go back and uh, think about those things that we've said and be able to see those things in the various judges, the times in which uh, they... Uh, lived and ministered and all the ups and downs uh, of the people of God. So I'm going to test uh, you this morning and really a test for myself to show how old I am. Uh, I'm going to say something and you're going to repeat the answer or you're going to say the other part of it if if you know it. The thrill of victory. Ah, see all the old people, all all of us old people know that one, right? (laughs) That's uh, when I was a kid, that was like Saturday morning television, uh, ABC, Wild World, Wide the world, what was it called? The wide world of sports, sorry. The wide world of sports. And there was this uh, great music, and then there was this guy, uh, uh, there, there's someone winning a gold medal, and then there's like the proverbial uh, Olympian uh, downhill skier who just absolutely decimated uh, in a crash. And so the thrill of victory, uh, the agony of defeat. And that really describes Joshua and Judges. We, we go from Joshua and uh, the feeling of being upbeat and, and joyful the judges this morning, discouraging and depressing. Uh, Joshua faces difficulties and solves them. Judges encounters difficulties and compounds them. In Joshua, the leader of the Israelites was faithful. In Judges, the leaders are increasingly inconsistent. And if you go towards the end, probably the most famous judge, Samson, utterly disobedient. Look at how Judges opens at verse number one. We read there after the death of Joshua, notice this, the people of Israel, the children of Israel, inquired of the Lord. Inquired of the Lord. But go to the very end. Elder Miranda and I must have had a mind meld this week because he prayed my whole sermon out. So should we just end it now? Should we just end it now? I mean, well, Elder Lule is laughing, so I guess that means no. So the very end of Judges, 21, verse 25, we read uh, probably the most famous verse in the entirety of Judges. Uh, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So the story begins uh, contemporary with Joshua. They inquired of the Lord. Right? Positive. Positive. It ends in an utter negative. They did what was right in their own eyes. And so coming back then to the story that we've been going through, the whole story of the Bible, uh, the story of Judges takes place, as verse 1, as I just read that, after, notice, after the death of Joshua. So it's the natural conclusion and continuation of the story of God's dealing. So verse 1 of chapter 1, after the death of Joshua. But as the last verse of the whole book says in 21-25, it was also before before there was a king in Israel. So that's going to tie us into, we're going to come tonight to Ruth, because Ruth is contemporary with Judges, sometime in the Judges. And then that's going to lead us next Sunday morning, Lord willing, uh, chapter 21, verse 25, leads us to 1 Samuel, uh, into the time when the Lord uh, provided a king 
for the Israelites. So uh, this book, Sefer Shoftim, the book of Judges, uh, we turn to it, and these judges were, were types. They were pictures in the Old Testament that God gave to his children, the Israelites, uh, appropriate to their time and place in history. They were types of a messianic king who was to come. And, and like the antitype, the fulfillment, our Lord Jesus Christ, they brought judgments upon their enemies, but also upon the people of God. So when you hear the word judges, don't think of a judge in a courtroom with a gavel, right? That's not the kind of judge we're talking about here, not a courtroom judge. Uh, but these judges execute God's judgments, God's righteousness, uh, God's even vengeance at times upon his enemies. And so uh, the big theme here that we want to explore this morning is how the Lord continues to be faithful to his covenant. The Lord continues to be faithful to his covenant as he saves his people despite the ever-growing shadow of their covenant unfaithfulness. The big theme, the Lord, it's always the Lord, right? It's always God who's doing the work here. It's the Lord who continues to be faithful to his covenant as he saves his people despite the ever-growing shadow of their, the people's, covenant unfaithfulness. So that's why our little sermon title, I just said, Sin and Salvation. Sin and Salvation. It's like the old preacher said, you know, there's, the Bible's all about this, that, uh, that we do the sinning and what? God does the saving, right? That's, that's the Bible in a nutshell. And Judges is a microcosm of that. So sin and salvation. The Lord continues to be faithful to his covenant as he saves his people despite the ever-growing shadow of their covenant unfaithfulness. And chapter 1 then opens up on a high point. It's the best of times, and we'll see it's also the worst of times. So this high point. Moses' great successor was Joshua, but he died. Notice that again, chapter 1, verse 1. The question was, how would they respond? How would the Israelites respond to their leader's death? And that's what I began with this morning at verse 1 as well. The people of Israel inquired of the Lord. What does that mean, children? What does it mean to inquire of the Lord? Pray. It means to pray, doesn't it? And, and to question. I mean, we ask God questions in prayer. If, we, right, if we're going around, you know, downtown Carlsbad, there's signs everywhere, you know, help wanted, inquire within, right? So ask questions. But we ask these questions of God. That's what it means to inquire. It means to pray, really, uh, but to do so in a, in a questioning kind of a way. Now, the book of Joshua, we saw, said several times that there were times of rest. That was that big idea of Joshua, rest from war in Joshua's days. And so they had rest. So that's how the book ended. They had rest from war and from their enemies. But the Israelites knew that the Lord commanded them through Joshua, even before he died, to finish the fight against the enemies of God. And so with Joshua's death, they need direction. Sort of like the who, the what, the when, the where, the why kinds of questions. And so they need direction. Who is going to go? Who are we going to go against? When do we go? Where do we go? It's so simple, but it bears repeating. Ask the Lord what to do before you do it. That's one of the principles that we see here. Before they go out and do, they ask the Lord, what shall we do? And so that's what they ask there. Who shall go up for us against the Canaanites, verse 1 again, to fight against them? 
Who shall go up for us to fight the Canaanites? And the Lord replies, verse 2, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. So remember from Joshua last Sunday, is again, that verb, giving, was used again and again and again to emphasize God's grace in giving the land of, God, uh, of promise to the people of God as his gift to them. And we saw it was a picture even then of a much greater gift, which is the new heavens and the new earth, which we have now in principle in Christ, who gives us rest of soul. Notice also in verse 3 that Judah, uh, verse 3 describes Judah, the tribe of Judah, asking the tribe of Simeon to fight alongside so that Judah can then inherit their territory. And then Judah promises, if you help me, I'm going to then help you, or we're going to help you, Simeon, with your territory. So you, you, know, you scratch my back, I'm going to scratch yours, as, as we say sometimes. So there's this, there's this mutual uh, 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 unity amongst the people of God. Judah goes up, as God says. Simeon assists him. They win the victories. And then Judah says to, to Simeon, when you help me and we finish and I have rest, then we will go out and help you so that you too can have your land and have your rest. And so verse 4 shows the result of that. Judah went up. And the Lord, notice this, and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. They even defeat this king, Adonai Bezek, the lord of this region, Bezek. That's what Adonai means, the lord. They defeat him, and they do to him what he had done to 70 other kings. They cut off fingers and toes and so forth. Uh, verses 5 through 7. So Judah has victory. Jerusalem, the southern region called the Negev, that's down in the wilderness, the desert and the, the great city of Hebron. One of Israel's greatest generation, we might call this generation of those who went into the promised land, who won victories, we might call them in our sort of political national language, the greatest generation, right? Those who fought and won World War II to give us freedom and, and victory. One of those greatest of, of, the, of, the, of their greatest generation was Caleb. Joshua's dead. The, the final spy who went in and gave a good report was Caleb. And he even, in his old age, stands up and promises his daughter Aksa, verse 11 and 12, uh, to a man who would lead the attack on this city called Debir, or Kiriath-Sephir. Now, notice this. Look at verse 13. We call this, a, in, in literary terms, a foreshadowing. A foreshadowing. This character is going to come up in a big way. Who's the one who then took Caleb at his word, who took up Caleb's challenge. It was Othniel. Othniel. We'll see he's the first judge. We'll see him in chapter 3. Verse 16 even takes us backward in time, all the way back to Numbers chapter number 10. So just quickly go back to Numbers 10 to refresh your memory. There was this really interesting story as Moses and the Israelites were, uh, were then to go uh, from the mountain of God and they were going through the wilderness to the promised land. And, and Moses said to, this is Numbers 10 verse 29, Moses said to Hobab the son of Ruel, the Midianite, Moses' father-in-law, we're going to set out. We need your help scouting out the land and so forth. Uh, he said, no, I'm not going to go up with you. Uh, he insists, Moses insists, and eventually uh, we learn, I mentioned, uh, we learn from Judges 1 that he actually went up. Because in verse 16 we read, the descendants of the Kenites 
Moses' father-in-law. So he's called in Numbers chapter 10, this man Hobab, the son of Ruel, the Midianite. But the Midianites uh, in this particular clan were also called the Kenites. Remember that? I said they went up with Moses. The Gentiles were already going up with the Israelites into the promised land or out of, e- out of Egypt to the wilderness. And here we see that come to fulfillment. So already we're seeing that fulfillment of God bringing his promise, not just to his own people, but bringing Gentiles and outsiders into the covenant too. So those descendants are there. And they went up with the people of Judah from the city of Palms into the wilderness uh, and so forth. The summary of all this chapter then, or this first part of the chapter, is found in verse number 19. So Joshua dies. They're not sure when to go, who's going to go first, uh, who's going to go with them, where they're going to go, which tribe they're going to fight against, and so forth. They inquire of God. They ask God. God gives the answer. Judah needs to go first. right? He's the line of the kings. Judah goes first. Simeon joins him. They go up. They win battles. Caleb even stands up and, and wins even more battles. And Othniel is foreshadowed here, the great judge. And these Kenites are also participating in the victory. And verse number 19 then summarizes for us. Verse number 19, and the Lord was with Judah, and the Lord was with Judah. The Lord's presence. The Lord's presence. I've been pointing this out throughout, even last week. The Lord's presence. Remember I said, what, you know, what equipped Joshua to be the leader that, that he was and that Israel needed? It was the Lord's presence. He kept saying to Joshua, I'm going to be with you like I was to Moses. Fear not, go. And I'm with you. So the Lord, he is the deciding factor between, we might say again, the thrill of victory and the agony of defeat. And just to remind us of what we've seen, go back to Exodus 32 and 33, just just for a second. I'm going to point out a couple of verses there. I uh, encourage you to read the whole, the, this whole narrative yourself, chapter 32 to 34, the golden calf, and then the command to leave, and then Moses uh, sees the glory of God. Israel made a golden calf. We know that story. And the Lord did what in response to the golden calf? He told Moses that he was going to go down from the mountain and do what to Israel? He's going to wipe them out and start afresh. We're going to wipe them all out. Moses, you're faithful. We're going to start all over with you. And we read in chapter 32 uh, that that, that very story, verse number 11, that Moses implored the Lord not to do this. And the Lord relented, right? It's really an amazing picture to us we've seen of prayer. The Lord then in chapter 33 commands Moses to command the Israelites to leave Mount Sinai, the mountain of God, and to then go to the promised land. But look at verse 3 of chapter 33. Go up to the land, a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you. So the Lord's going to wipe them out, start with Moses. Moses implores God, he pleads with God, he intercedes with God. God relents and says, fine, I'm going I'm to bring these people up, but I'm not going up with them. Look at verse 4. When the Israelites heard this, look at what it's called, a disastrous word. A disastrous word. That I'm not going up with you. That's, the, that's what's disastrous about it. And again, Moses, verse 15 of chapter 33, again, he intercedes and 
this beautiful prayer. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. That's how important the presence of God was. That's how important the presence of God was to Moses, to Joshua, and now in the days of the judges, even before the judges, the time of Judah, winning their victory. Lord, if you won't go with us, don't send us. And it's that presence that Jesus promised to his disciples, his apostles, when he said to go, not into a one particular land, but into all lands, to every tribe, tongue, language, people, and nation. And what did he promise the, the apostles in Matthew 28? What was the thing that assured them of their victory of preaching the gospel, saving hearts and lives? What was the promise? I will be with you always to the close of the age. The presence of the Lord. It's that same presence, brothers and sisters. It's that same presence that's among us as a congregation and within us and you and me as believers. Paul can collectively call the church in Corinth and every individual believer and so therefore he calls congregations like this and every believer, what? Temples of the Holy Spirit. Temples of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God among us, with us, and within us. So it was the best of times, we might say. It was the best of times. Victory after victory. But then we read about the worst of times. There was only partial conquest for Judah. So we read these victories in the first part of the first chapter, but they're all partial conquests, even for Judah. He took possession, verse number 19 again, of the hill country, but he could not drive out the, inheritance of the, uh, the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Well, so did Pharaoh, Right? Didn't Pharaoh have, 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 have chariots of iron? The Israelites came out of Egypt. They got to the Red Sea. They saw nothing but a, a, a sea of water. They probably, none of them could swim. They were going to drown because behind them was coming Pharaoh's armies and chariots of iron. And of course, the, the pillar of fire then went from the front to the back, blocked them off, opened the, river, or opened the sea up. They passed through on dry ground. Pharaoh also had chariots of iron, but they, but they weren't afraid, or they were afraid, but God did something. They survived. But here, they don't dispossess their enemies because they had chariots of iron. It's, there's something off here. There's something going on here. There's something amiss here. Yes, they had chariots of iron, but they should have trusted the Lord is the implication. Jericho, we saw last Sunday, Jericho had walls. What kinds of weapons do the Israelites have against those walls? That's right, nothing. <laughs> Everyone's quiet. Nothing. They had shofars. They had ram's horns. Are you kidding me? Right, we saw this. This is ridiculous. This is the foolishness of the gospel. That's all they had. But they won. The Lord won. So something is strange here. Look at how even Caleb receives his inheritance. As Moses said. So back to, back to Judges. Even Caleb, we read, uh, receives his inheritance as Moses said. 
verse number 20. And he even drove out, look at, look at this. He even drove out the three sons of Anak. Who are the Anakim? Anakim is the plural of Anak. Who, who are these Anakim, these sons of Anak? These are giants. Joshua sends in the 12 spies. They see how great and beautiful and wonderful this land is. It flows with milk and honey. Oh, but we, we can't go because these, these Anakim are there and we're like grasshoppers to them. That's how big they are and how strong they are. Caleb, old Caleb. He saw these Anakim way back when and now he drives them out, we read. He was successful, but the entire tribe of Judah wasn't. Again, something's amiss. Beginning at verse 21 and down to the rest of the chapter, there, there's this very sad refrain. Here's what the problem was. Look at verse 21. But the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites. Again, verse 27 and 28. Manasseh, and it goes through all these tribes. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants, but did not drive them out completely. Verse 28. Verse 29, Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites. Verse 30, Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants. Verse 31, 32, Asher did not drive out the inhabitants, for they did not drive them out. And finally, verse 33, Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. It's the worst of times. It's only partial, partial rest, partial victory. They cannot drive out their enemies. Even worse, verse 34, it was actually the other way around at times. Verse 34, the Amorites pressed the people of the tribe of Dan back into the hill country. Notice that. They are making advances, but they have to go back into the hill country. Why? For they did not allow them, the Amorites did not allow the Danites to come back down to the plain. So there's something wrong here, brothers and sisters. That's what you begin to see in the, in the first chapter of Judges. Yes, there is victory, and yes, they started off uh, on a high note, praying to the Lord, Lord, where do we go? They went, they had victory, but it's all partial, and in fact, the enemies begin to push back against them. How did it turn so quickly from the thrill of victory down to the, the doldrums of the agony of defeat? We begin to see an answer in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2. We read about this angel of the Lord again. Verse number 1, the angel of the Lord again. We've seen him before, haven't we? Who is he? Look at how he's described here, just to press the point. Verse 1, I'm just going to go through, verse 1 through 5. I brought you up from Egypt. This is the angel speaking. I brought you up from Egypt. Children, who freed the Israelites from slavery in Egypt? God did, didn't he? But the angel says, I did it. Okay, so keep those two things together. I brought you, verse 1, into the land. In Joshua 3, when they went into the land, they came to the Jordan River, the Ark of the Covenant went first. Why did the Ark go first beyond the Jordan River into the Promised Land? What was the Ark all about? The presence of God. It was showing the Israelites that it was God who was doing this. So I brought you into the land. 
Again, verse 1. The land that I swore to give to your fathers. Who are the fathers? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, right? I said, I will never break my covenant. Notice this. Notice the, 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 the first person pronouns there, right? I, I, my. This is what God said to Father Abraham back in Genesis 17. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you for an everlasting covenant. I won't break it, he's saying. You shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars. Well, who spoke that? That was the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 7 and chapter 12. It was God who said that. Verse 2 of, of Judges 2. You have not obeyed my voice. So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. Verse 3. So again, the, the angel speaking here in first person uh, singular uh, pronouns in all these instances. So we have that, and then we, we know exactly who this angel, quote-unquote, angel was because of the response of the Israelites. Who do the Israelites think that the angel of God was? Who was speaking to them? Look, look at verse 5. To whom do they sacrifice? The Lord. They sacrifice there to the Lord. Faithful Israelites did not make sacrifices to angels, brothers and sisters, but to the Lord. And the angel answers the question why Israel was so unsuccessful in dispossessing the Canaanites. Why were they not able to drive them out? What was wrong? You have not obeyed my voice, verse 2. Right, put a little asterisk there. We'll come back to that. Then we read again of Joshua's death, verse 6 through 10. That takes us back to Joshua 24. Uh, judges, but Judges 1.1 said that after the death of Joshua, all this stuff happened. Now we read about his death again. What's up with that? Well, Bible narratives aren't always in chronological order, right? Dax and I were watching uh, SEAL Team, the show SEAL Team, this week, and every character in one of the episodes, they have the character on the screen, all of a sudden they flash back to, the, to that character as a kid. And so the episode wasn't even chronological, right? You had to kind of pay attention and figure that out. So the, the text isn't chronological, it's just it's pointing us back to these things. But these verses tell us, verse 7, that the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. They had rest. That was the book of Joshua. And all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, men like Caleb, who had seen all the great work the Lord had done for Israel. So all those mentions of rest last Sunday in the book of Joshua, they were all tied to that greatest generation's faith and obedience. But all that generation, verse 10 says, they were gathered to their fathers. What does that mean, to be gathered to their fathers? That's a Bible way, a euphemism, a nice way of saying that they died. They died. So I'm, I'm going to give these, there's three generations. The ones who came out of Egypt uh, uh, and died in the wilderness. The ones who were born in the wilderness and went into the promised land. And then there's this generation that was born in the promised land, right? So there's three generations. We're going to call the first generation Gen X, okay? E-X, though, Gen X, okay? Uh, I'm a Gen Xer, so I've got to throw Gen X in there somewhere. So Gen X, right, they came out of, uh, uh, in the Exodus, but they died in the wilderness because of their disobedience. We saw that already back in Numbers, back in Deuteronomy, Joshua. Then there we might say there's Gen L, right? There's Gen Land, we might call them. Uh, they served the Lord in the land. But what about the, what about the grandchildren? I'll call them Gen Dis. They dissed the Lord, right? They were disobedient, okay? They were disobedient to the Lord and 
therefore, we read verse 10. Notice verse 10, just how striking this verse 10 should be to us. It sounds like the Pharaoh in the time of uh, the Israelites in the time of Joseph, all the way back in Exodus. There arose another generation. Like there arose another Pharaoh back then. There arose another generation, verse 10, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. That should strike us, loved ones, that verse. This is such an urgent reminder to us that it is incumbent upon us as parents uh, in this church, with the assistance of you, our older brothers and sisters, whose children are older now and out of the house, your spiritual grandparents in this church, it's incumbent upon us to pass down the faith to every one of our children in this church. Amen? Amen. It's, it's incumbent upon us to do this. And when I say to pass down the faith, it's not just doctrine, but it's also how we live, right? It's doctrine in life. It's not just uh, do as I say, but do as I do. It's to teach and to preach and to practice the things that we teach. And it's necessary for all of you, children. It's necessary for you, it's important for you to embrace for yourself the faith that you hear when we come to hear preaching, when you are at home with your parents, when you're driving somewhere talking about the Word or talking about the Lord. It's imperative for you to trust the Lord, to trust Him, to follow the way of life that you see, Lord willing, your parents living and your spiritual grandparents in this church living as well. So this is just one of those verses that says, strike us. There arose a generation that did not know the Lord. How do they not know him? How do they not know his works? Again, this is the greatest generation that goes in with Joshua. They didn't pass down the faith, we're we're being told this. Again, verse 2, you've not obeyed my voice. And so verses 11 to 23, the rest of the chapter, summarizes the entirety of the whole book, really, uh, showing us Israel's downward spiral into sin and disobedience. What does the people of Israel... uh, 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 When you read that phrase in verse 11, look at verse 11. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What does that sound like if you know your Bible? The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. What does that sound like? We're not there yet. We're going to get to where this sounds like. This sounds like the worst of the kings of Israel in First and Second Kings. There's always that refrain, you know, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not follow the ways of his father David. That's describing this generation of people of God in the promised land. They did what was evil. In the sight of the Lord. The Lord who brought their grandparents out of Egypt, provided for their parents in the wilderness, and led their parents into the promised land, was not this generation's Lord. Verse 11, they served the Baals, the God of the Canaanites, their storm God. They served that God instead. How is that possible again? How is this possible? The possibility is not very hard to imagine. The same possibility of apostasy is within us, loved ones. Don't forget this. This is not just like a museum piece or like, oh, you know, those people way back there, you know, God help them. I would never do this, Lord. Right? Like the Pharisee. 
Lord, I'm not like this publican over here. You know, I'm not like these sinners over here. You know, I, I, I'm, you need me, Lord. No, he doesn't. How is it possible for a whole generation that had parents who knew the Lord, grandparents who died, and they know that taught them, your grandparents died in the wilderness for disobedience, and they disobey? How is it possible? Because of our sinfulness. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, our church, is never more than a generation from complete and utter spiritual ruin. We've got to be on guard. We've got to be on guard. Isn't it, I mean, isn't it mind-blowing to think that after the Lord Jesus Christ and the apostles, within one generation, you have John writing about the power of the Holy Spirit to the church of the Revelation, and almost all of them are apostates. This was not a golden age, right? Just getting back to the New Testament is not going to solve the problem. The problem is trust in the Lord. Be on guard, loved ones. They abandoned, verse 12, the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. The God, notice the God of their fathers. is sort of like this distance that you can feel. But the God of their fathers must be the God of our fathers, of my father. Right? There has to be a personal belief, children, again. We have to embrace for ourselves. But they went after other gods. Which ones? Again, verse 12. From among the gods of the peoples who were around them. And we have here mentioned Baal. He's mentioned the Ashtaroth. These are these, pole, these uh, sort of totem poles that were placed on high places. You would have sacrificed to them. In other words, we must be, or we are in the world as believers. We are already in the world, but we cannot be of the world. We've got to be in it, but not of it. And the world that you live in has many gods. Look in the mirror. You'll see one right there. Your own ego, your own self. You see gods and you hear gods every single day vying for your allegiance, service, and worship. And so their sin led to servitude. Their sin led to servitude. The anger of the Lord, verse 14, was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers. Notice that. He gave them the land, but now he's giving them to plunderers. Who plundered them? Verse 14 again. He sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies. That takes us back to Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. Breaking God's covenant meant servitude to the nations. Now the narrative skips the fourth S, supplication. Uh, that'll be in chapter 3, if you, were gonna, if you go ahead and read. But it goes right into the Lord's sending salvation. So there's sin, there's servitude, there's supplication, there's salvation. That's the cycle of the judges. Those four S's right there. Verse 16, the Lord raised up judges who saved them. Who saved them. But that didn't solve the problem, notice. That didn't solve the problem. We, we would think that would solve the problem, but it didn't. Verse 17, yet they did not listen to their judges. They just saved you. They would not listen. It sounds kind of like the Israelites coming out of Egypt and not listening to God. There's a cycle of sin, loved ones. A sinful nature that exists in us. We are born with that. We prayed about that this morning in our prayer confession. A sinful nature leads you and I to actual sins. And then those actual sins lead you down further down the spiral into further sins. And then eventually you spiral out of control to so much sin that you crash lands. That's Israel here. Why? It's because sin is a deep-rooted heart issue. It's not about 
It's not about don't do this, but do that. That's part of why I said last Sunday, I don't care who you vote for. It's not about, like, the, we're so fixated on the outward stuff. The parties or, you know, the politicians, the, the ideologies, and then we talk about, you know, you got to do this, you can't do those kinds of things, and these things are sin, and avoid that. And Our heart is the issue, loved ones. What's inside of you? What you are by nature is the problem. Look at verse 17. They hoard after other gods. That's an inside-out kind of a problem. They hoard after other gods. They lusted for, they longed for other gods, and because they did that inside, they served other gods and bowed down to them, verse 17. St. Augustine talked about us being creatures who are created by, by a God of love to love. A God of love made us to love. The problem is our love is disordered. It's skewed by our sinfulness. And so, we love ourselves. We are what we love. We love ourselves. And we project that self-love onto other things and people, and in this context, gods. But notice verses 18 and 19. It describes the love of God. In all this downward cycle and spiral of sin, Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge. There's that presence of God again. And he saved them from the hand of their enemies. Why? For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning. But, but whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers. And so, hence, the chapter ends with yet another cycle of servitude. Verse 20, the Lord's anger was kindled against them. He left all those nations amongst them. He, just, he left them there to be stumbling blocks for them. That's the rest of the chapter leading into chapter 3. So I want you to take that and go read the Judges. A sample of that is in chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. We see, that again, the cycle of sin, servitude, supplication, salvation in the judge Othniel, who was foreshadowed in our chapter number 1. Sin, servitude, supplication, salvation. Chapter 3 to 16 go on to chronicle the saving work of the judges. Ehud, Shamgar, Barak, and his cohort Deborah, Gideon, Tola, Jair, Jephthah, Ibzan, Elon, not Musk, but the judge, Abdon, and Samson. But it was hardly the best of times. Hardly the best of times. I put on the outline there, I think I did, I put on the outline there this little refrain that uh, pops up again and again and again. I think it's there. Ah, I forgot to put it there. Well, when you go through those judges, you have to see this refrain the children of Israel again and then again and then again did evil in the sight of the Lord. That refrain pops up again and again and again. It was hardly the best of times. And as you read through those judges, note the, the period of rest that each judge gives. 
It's only a temporary reprieve. Othniel will give him 40 years of rest. Ehud, double that, 80 years of rest. Barak and Deborah, 40 years. Gideon, 40 more years. Tola, 40 years. Jair, though, as, the, as, the, as it goes on, they, they begin to taper off. Jair, 22 years. Jephthah, only six. Ibzon, seven. Elon, I guess because he flew to Mars, gave him 10. Uh, Abdon gave him eight. And then Samson, sort of a last gasp, 20 years of rest. And while the Lord called them and equipped them to save, the judges themselves even weren't loyal to God's covenant. For example, read about Gideon. You know, we, Gideon is, you know, in his, in, his, in his little crew of guys who wipe out their enemies of God and so forth. The spirit-led leader. Yeah, but he also made this little ephod, this little chest plate that, that the high priest alone was to have. And eventually that, that second high, uh, high priestly chest plate uh, ephod becomes an idol for the Israelites. It was hardly the best of times. In fact, it was the worst of times. This period of judges begs for a final judge to end oppression, to end sin, to end death, and to usher in real rest, eternal rest. Yet each of the judges does foreshadow that one who was to come. And one of the ways that we see this in the judges is that the Lord uses the most unlikely of people to serve as judges, to save his people. He uses the most unlikely kind of people to save his people. Ehud was a left-handed assassin. He was an assassin. Okay? Deborah was a prophetess. Gideon, a reluctant farmer. Abimelech was a, if I can use that, this term, a bastard bandit. Samson was a sex-addicted Nazarite. And one day, in a day to come, from the vantage point of the judges, in a backwater town called Nazareth, that was so backwater that people said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? A carpenter's stepson. A carpenter, stepson, who, who lived in a scandalous, people scandalized, were scandalized because she was a virgin, but yet had a son. How can she be a virgin and have a son? Something must have happened. But yet he brought salvation to the world. As Paul tells us, God chose what is foolish to shame the wise. God chose what is weak to shame the strong. Judges is a downward spiral of sin. It's a depressing book. It's not the best of times. It's the worst of times, one of the worst of times in all of Israel's history. But yet we see there just a little glimpse, little hints of Jesus. An unlikely, from a human vantage point, an unlikely Savior. An unlikely Savior, but yet it's in Him that we find the saving grace of God. In his foolishness, we find the wisdom of God. In his weakness, we find the power of God. It just reminds us, we read the judges, it just reminds us again that God saves sinners. God saves sinners. He's not, he's, the Lord is searching out people to worship him. He saves sinners. Don't forget that. You don't have to figure it all out first and then come to him. You don't have to clean it up first and come to him. No, we just come to him. We come to him and we offer all we have is our sin and 
he takes that and he removes it from us and then he puts upon us the, the very perfect, spotless righteousness of Jesus, his son, and calls you sons and daughters, heirs of everlasting life. Amen? Amen. Let's thank the Lord this morning for the good news of Jesus that comes to us even out of dark times like the judges. Let's pray.